All right. Once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome you all here and all those listening on our podcast channel. Uh, This evening, we're going to be studying Romans chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Romans chapter 11. Um, If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. All the verses will be on the screen behind me, or if you want to use your phone or your tablet, that's okay too. So let's jump right in. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. This is what Paul tells us. He actually is going to ask an important question. He says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So when we read a question like this, what we always need to ask ourselves is, why is Paul asking a question like this, right? Did God reject the Israelites? Did God do this? Was that part of his plan? And this basically stems from the issue of the majority of the Israelites did reject Jesus as the Messiah. And since the Israelites uh, rejected Jesus, does that mean that God rejected them right back, right? Did he kick them to the curb and then decide to go in with the Gentiles? And that's not necessarily a bad question, especially if it comes from concern for the Israelite people, right? Since they didn't accept Jesus, what does that mean for them spiritually? Where are they going to be, right? If, you, if that's where it's coming from, that's great. That's a good question. But if it comes from a place where now who's better, us or them? Like, you know, hey, whoa, hey, right? That's not necessarily uh, a great question because we are no better. We're not called to judge people or race a nation um, at all. We're called to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, period, to all people. So when Paul asks this question, what he's doing is he's making sure we all understand that we're not to insert our own thoughts, our own judgment, our own ideas in place of God's overarching plan. And he's about to get into what that plan is, right? So he's kind of laying the groundwork. And that's easy for humans to do, to kind of insert our own opinions, right? And if we do that, here's the problem. If we do that, it's problematic for a number of reasons. The main one, though, is that God has not written off the Jewish people. He hasn't, right? He hasn't written anyone off. He wants them to be saved just like everyone else. So the real danger is if we prejudge, if we jump to conclusions, and we write off certain people that God hasn't written off, that's bad for them, and it's also bad for us. So when Paul asks this question, has God rejected his chosen people? He quickly answers, no, by, by no means, absolutely not. He's saying God is not done. The game's not over. The final buzzer hasn't gone off. And until that final buzzer goes off, there is work to do, right? That's Paul's point. This is where he's going to start leading us. Now, the reason Paul also mentions his status as an Israelite and even the specific tribe that he's from is to highlight that he knows what he's talking about, right? He's an Israelite through and through, which means he's actually got a a foot in both camps, right? He's an Israelite, but he also believes in Jesus Christ and he's preaching the message, right? He was trained as a Pharisee, so he's not a stranger to either side, right? So he's the perfect person to help the outside world understand what's in the hearts and the minds of the Jews. What are they thinking? How did they get there? What's in their future? Why did they, why did they miss Jesus being the Messiah? And then what do we as Christians do to help them see that, right? So as we continue and study this chapter, Paul's going to explain all of that in detail. So this chapter really, it's a warning, it's a roadmap for keeping us all on track with God's plan, right? And that's really what matters. So let's go in the next few verses. We're going to read Romans 11, verses 2 to 5, all right? He says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that 
what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, you have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So what Paul's talking about here is there's a story in 1 Kings in the Old Testament, verses 18 to 19, where there's this king, Ahab, who's not a good guy, and he has a wife named Jezebel, who's even worse. And really, they go after uh, believers, they go after the prophets, and they kill a whole lot of them. In fact, they kill so many, Elijah truly believes he's the last one left. Like, there are no more. And so when Elijah says to God, look, I'm the only one left, he's kind of in a state of feeling sorry for himself, and he's also losing sight of the fact that God is the one that's actually in control. And so to reassure him and to keep Elijah on track, God tells him that a remnant has been spared. There is, in fact, 7,000 who still believed in God, who still remained true. And the point being that God's plan was not thwarted by Jezebel and Ahab, right? And so the reason Paul's relating the story now is because of what was happening then with the Jewish people. The majority of the Jews, in fact, did not believe in Jesus Christ. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They had turned their back on God's plan. Um, most of them did, but not all, right? Some Jews actually did come to believe, and this is evidenced by Paul himself. He was a believer, right? The disciples, they were Jews. They believed. The early church in Jerusalem, they believed. So the point is that while the majority can fall away, that does not affect God's greater plan. All right, we may see a large majority falling away and the world not heading in the right direction. And I believe that can give us some cause for concern, right? Anybody worried about that from time to time? All right, look at the news, all that kind of stuff. It's normal, right? But that does not mean that God is not in control. That does not mean his plan is still unfolding, right? So we don't have to worry. We humans, we can get hung up on a lot of stuff. We actually see these big things going on and we try to come up with a plan in our head and we think, oh my gosh, it's gonna take this, this, and this, and this many people, and oh my gosh, we gotta do this. And we have these long lists. Is anybody with me on that, right? You had all this stuff that's gotta happen, right? And you have all these workers and it's gonna take this much of time. We have this mental picture of what God's gotta do to solve this problem. And you think, oh my gosh, it's crazy. There's just no way. We totally do that. We do that with big stuff, do it with small stuff, we do it with everything in between, right? And in everyday life, that can be fine, that's planning. But when it comes to God's plan for the world, that does not work. God's abilities are not our abilities, all right? What's impossible for us or seems impossible for us is not impossible for God. And a really good example of this is all the, ex the miracles that the disciples experienced, right? Each one was totally amazing for the disciples. Totally amazing, right? But when Jesus moved on to do the next miracle, like this one right after that, five minutes before that, none of them were going, oh, I bet he's about to do that. They had no idea what was going to happen next. When Jesus turned water into wine, that was amazing, right? They're like, oh, that's so cool. But when it came to healing the sick, casting out demons, none of them said, well, we saw him turn into water into wine. I bet he's going to make that lame guy walk. None of them were able to see the bigger picture, right? We couldn't do that. They had no idea turning water into wine also gave him the power to do those other things. Also, uh, recently I recounted the story of the disciples in the boat with Jesus uh, when the storm came up and calmed down, kind of like what's happening now, it looks like, right? Perfect timing. Thank you. When he calmed the storm, 
the disciples were, I'm sorry, I couldn't pass that up. You know there's one disciple who would have totally made that joke too. When the disciples did that, uh, they were blown away that Jesus had the ability to calm the storm, right? They'd already seen all the other miracles, but none of them could have guessed that was about to happen, right? Think about what happened with Lazarus. Ooh, they were like, no, no, go in there. He's been in there days. Don't do that. They had no idea that he had the power to do that, right? So the reason I make this point is even when disciples of Jesus Christ see those miracles right in front of their eyes, that did not help them anticipate, guess, understand the bigger plan, right? So we, we just don't have that ability. God's power, his plan are way beyond anything we can comprehend or understand. We simply can't wrap our heads around what he can do, right? And keep in mind, I'm a pastor and I'm telling you this, right? You might think as a pastor, we can guess God's next move or what's gonna happen and it, I'm continually surprised by what he does and how he operates, right? And so back to our story with Paul and Elijah, the message that we can take from this is that God does all the time work with very, very small numbers of people who do amazing things, things that we would never understand. And our inability to guess God's next step is equaled by our inability to guess the number of people he needs to do it. Does that kind of make sense? There's a whole lot of stuff we just can't comprehend. So this is one of the reasons why Paul is so bold about this remnant who still believe, right? And how we could never write off the Israelites or anyone else for that matter, right? In the big picture, God is not done. Our job, as we're going to see, is to simply do what Jesus commanded, and that is to go and make disciples because that matters. That really matters. So let's see what Paul says next in verses 6 to 10. He says, and if by grace, then and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Um, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs spent forever. Now here's where Paul is starting to get to the meat of the problem for the Israelites. And this is also one of our take-home messages for today. This is important. God gave grace to all without ever looking at their performance. Right? This means God showed grace to the Israelites and it had nothing to do with their previous performance or what they were going to do in the future, right? They didn't earn his grace or his favor. God simply gave out of love, as he gives to all. But here at the same time is the tragic irony. The Israelites always assumed it was related to works. They believed they received that grace and that favor because they were Israelites, right? So in a sense, they earned it. They were owed it to a degree. And this became a stumbling block for them. They also believe they could retain that favor and earn their salvation through works. And we know from the Bible, specifically the New Testament, that is completely false. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we're saved. And the interesting thing about grace and works, and this is why I called it this tragic irony, is that those two things are diametrically opposed. If something is of works, meaning that you worked for it, you earned it, it's absolutely not grace. It's not free. That's why we have a a word called earned. You earned it. You did the work. It's yours. You earned it. 
right? And grace, on the other hand, is 100% free, 100%. You can't earn it, you didn't do it, you can't claim it, right? It's, that's not what it is. And having those, thing together, those things together, it's like trying to put fire and water in a bucket. It's not gonna work. You can't have both. One is going to kill the other. And so that's the same th- thing with grace and work, grace and works. So the reason Paul, the reason he makes such a big deal about this, that this was such a big problem for the Jews back then, and even today to a degree, right? Even the world, right? This may seem like overkill making this big issue of a problem back then, but I'll tell you, it exists today. I talk to people, and test me on this, just quietly in your time, ask family, friends, people you work with, neighbors, whatever, ask them, who gets into heaven, in your opinion? How do you get to heaven? You know what invariably people will tell you, even people that are Christian? Good people go to heaven. Good people. So you earn it. You get a good enough grade, like in school. That's how you get there, right? And the issue with, the issue with that idea, it's not wrong because I said it or Paul said it. It's wrong because Jesus said that's wrong. That's not how it works. And I'm sure most of you have all heard this Bible verse, John 3.16, right? It's a fabulous one. It's good. There's a solid reason that verse is so well-known worldwide. There's a solid reason why that's the verse we share the most throughout the world. The reason we use that verse is that it perfectly sums up why and who gets saved. It's very clear, right? So let's read this. And I want you to read it this time like you're a lawyer. Get out that magnifying glass. We're going to look at every, and it's going to be like, bam, bam, bam. This is what it means. Here's your loophole. No, there's no loophole, right? That's what we're going to do. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now again, let's dissect this and find out why it's so important. So the first part, for God so loved the world. This, this first part tells us that God is the one who acted first. He did something, right? He moved first because he loved us, which means we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't guilt him into anything, right? The idea of works, now see if you can mentally force that in there. Is there a way you can wedge that in there somehow? You gotta earn it, you gotta do really good. You know, get like a B plus at least. You really can't, right? There's just no room for it. The next part tells us that he gave his one and only son. He did something. God moved first out of love and then he gave his son to the world, right? And because Jesus is now out there in the world, whoever believes in him, something will happen, right? So this is what we have so far. Let's go to our next slide. God loved. The next one more. There we go. God loved. God gave Jesus. Whoever believes in Jesus, then what? Will have eternal life, right? So those four things spell out grace in the best way possible. It's a free gift. All we need to do is believe in Jesus Christ. But even with that being so simple and so straightforward, we humans like to add all kinds of stuff to it. Religion, denominations. You gotta pray a certain way. You gotta sing. You can't do, you know, it's too loud. No, you gotta do this. You gotta, you know, you gotta wear this to church. No, you don't have to wear that to church. Right? We all do this. And the Israelites did this in, uh, as well. In fact, they, did, they added so many rules to this and they turned their back on God so much that God responded. And we read about this in verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul explains, he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, 
eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear. There's also a verse that talks about a stumbling block and their eyes being darkened. And what this means is because they cause their, because they cause their own spiritual deadness by pursuing works over grace, God said, listen, because you refuse to see the truth repeatedly, 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 time after time, fine, your eyes are going to be darkened even more. Right? It's like saying, listen, I gave you a shovel to dig yourselves out, but all you keep doing is digging deeper, deeper, deeper. I'm warning you, deeper, deeper, deeper. Finally, he says, that's fine, dig all you want. And that's really what he, what is, what's going on. It's sad, but it's true. And let's continue a little further into verse 11. And let's go beyond that because Paul's going to go further into this subject. It's important. And here's where it's going to matter for us. He's going to tell us Gentiles, which means us, how we should see and understand ourselves in relation to this, right? So this is important. Verses 11 to 14. He says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? No, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? He says, and this is, he says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Yeah, cool stuff. Let's pay close attention to verse 11 in particular. Paul makes it clear that the Israelites have not fallen too far beyond redemption, right? They're not too far gone. And the, and the, reason, the reason Paul's probably spending so much time on this is he wants this information to get out there, right? Israelite, God has a plan for them, right? Humans like to do their own things with religion and form their own ideas, and he keeps putting everything back in God's court. God has a plan for them. He's not finished. And if God hasn't written them off, we shouldn't either. And also he said salvation came to the Gentiles in part to make the Israelites envious. Let's spend a moment on this so, so we all understand what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. First of all, he's not saying the sole reason Gentiles have access to salvation is to make the Israelites jealous. That's not what he's saying. What Paul means is that God will use our access to salvation, which he gave out of love, our redemption through Jesus Christ, as a way to bring them back, as a way for them to learn how great Jesus is, to bring them back into the fold. And he uses the word envious, and he means it in a good way. It, the way I describe it is kind of like, it's almost saying like someone has a really nice house, a really nice boat, a really nice car, and that then drives you to want to know, how can I do that? How can I earn, how can I do my part to do that as well, right, in a good way? Now, Jesus spoke about this too. It's in Matthew chapter 5. He's talking about his followers. And as we read this, I want you to picture in your mind how you look to the outside world, how this church looks to the outside world, specifically the Israelites as well. Okay? Um, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, 14 to 16. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So it's clear from what Jesus said, he intends for his followers to be visible, like bright. 
And that visibility draws people in. It actually provides light in a dark world, right? And hopefully considers the world, in this case also the Israelites, to reconsider that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah, that Jesus really brings hope and salvation and forgiveness. And who we are and how we appear, right, is just as important as anything that we say. And so Paul, he wants us to know that God intends to use us to show the Israelites in the world that Jesus is the Messiah. Think about that. I mean, that's heavy-duty stuff, right? And now before we move on to the next few verses, I want to reinforce how important it is that we are in fact a light on a hill, or a bright spot, the way Jesus describes. There have been a number of times in the history of Christianity, where Christians in particular have shown hate, malice, and have directly persecuted the Jewish people. Pick up any history book, and that, that is absolutely what happened. And unfortunate, unfortunately, even today, anti-Semitism is alive. 100%, it's there. Some people even do it holding the helm of Christianity, claiming that, and that is 100% unacceptable in every form. The only thing, The only thing, you can mark me on this, that us Christians should be known for is sharing the message of Jesus Christ. 100%. And if we do that right, like Jesus says, we'll be a bright spot in the room, a city on the hill that can't be hidden. And that's the whole point, right? So we should really understand what Paul is saying, but we also need to not ignore what has happened in the past, okay? Because we can all do better. God is not done with the Israelites or anyone else. So we just need to really understand our role and that Jesus wants his followers to shine, okay? Let's continue with verses 15 to 21. This is where he's going to start to pick this part even more. Starting at verse 15, he says, For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, he's saying, granted, that's true. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Ooh, everybody kind of feel what he's talking about, right? There's some good information here, so let's really make sure we understand it. Paul makes an interesting point in verse 15 when he says, if their rejection of the gospel brought the gospel to the rest of the world, what will their acceptance of the gospel bring? And that's a cool thing, right? Like, if this this is what happens when they turn away from Jesus, how much better will things be when they turn back to Jesus Christ? For the world, right? And his point being God's goal has been always for the whole world to have a relationship with him, right? To know Jesus Christ. And in, and in the end, if and when the Jews do come back, what a day will that be, right? And that's what he's talking about. Now, as Paul heads into verses 17 and 18, 
he's giving another warning to the Gentiles to avoid making similar mistakes as the Jewish people did. Namely, he uses the analogy that we were grafted into God's tree. Right? We were inserted in there among other branches, which means the Israelites. That's his example. So imagine this huge tree, right? This huge tree with lots of branches. God the Father and Jesus are the roots, the base of the tree, and there's many, many branches. One of those branches, or several of them, are the Israelites. But because the Israelites became arrogant, turned their back on grace, their, on uh, Jesus Christ, they were then removed by God, right? The Gentiles were then grafted in as well, among and then to that tree. And now here's where, where we need, really need to take note of what Paul is saying here. He's saying if God was willing to remove the Israelites, break off that branch because of their unbelief, how much easier would it be for him to do the exact same to us? All right? If you think about it, it would be a no-brainer because he'd already done it once. And in reality, if you really think about this, take a step back, it would be unjust and unfair for God to remove the Israelites because of unbelief and disobedience and not do the exact same thing to the Gentiles. All right? When you think about it like that, you're like, oh, goodness. It's exactly what he's talking about. All right? And so Paul's other point is that he wants to keep us humble to remind us that neither the Israelites nor us are the tree. We're simply the branches. This is God's tree. That's what this is about. None of us should be arrogant, think we're better than the other. That is not it at all. Neither of us provide the foundation, the strength, or make the tree what it is. Most importantly, we can't exist without the tree. Tree can grow more branches, right? Which it already has done at least once. The issue for us is that if we're no longer useful to the tree, we can simply be pruned off, just like what happened with the Israelites. So again, this, this is a warning from Paul to the Gentiles to not become conceited, arrogant, not to forget that what we have is a free gift. And once we become followers, we're expected to share that gift, right? So let's move on to verses 22 to 24. He says, Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided, here's the key, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist, if, I'm sorry, if they, yeah, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For if God, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So here in verse 22, we see Paul is, he's absolutely pulling no punches, right? He's being very direct, right? He plainly states that God was stern to the Israelites because they fell away, because they didn't follow him, right? His gift to them came with expectations. They very much turned their back on him and his Messiah. And so, and just as in a blunt fashion, Paul looks squarely at the Gentiles, which is each one of us. So now for a minute, let's make this personal. Everybody look around at somebody else and do like this. We're all Gentiles. Me, remember you're pointing at yourself and them. Me, us. This is who he's talking to. It means you, it means me. And me, Paul is talking to each one of us and he says, we need to continue in a right, right relationship with God. We need to understand we have this amazing gift, just like the Israelites were given a gift. And we have a job. We have a role. And if we turn our back on that, the same thing will happen to us. All right? 
And this is one of those, let's be honest, this is one of those big girl, big boy messages for disciples, right? This is not a prosperity message that you're going to hear in some of those other churches because this is about, you, 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 we need to understand our role, right? This is Paul telling us we have this gift and we have a role to use it wisely. And that's why, this is why I love, so great about Jesus. He's so clear when he would give these commands, Jesus did, like the, like the Great Commission. This is another one of those, you can try to lawyer it up and find a way out, but you can't. He said, go and make disciples. And I challenge you to find a hole in that. Anybody got one? Find a loophole. No? Nothing about weekends, vacation, I'm getting ready to retire. You got nothing, Right? Go and make disciples. And that means to everyone, right? It's very not vague. He's very direct. Just like in uh, John 3, 16, whoever believes will be saved. Find a loophole. Anything? Got one? There's nothing there. It's so direct. Yeah, whoever believes, right? That's it. And so here in this section of uh, Romans, Paul's following Jesus' lead by being very, very blunt. He's telling us God did this to the Israelites. He will do it to us if we do the same thing. So he's like, don't do it. Stay strong. Follow in Jesus' footsteps. But like any good teacher, Paul's not going to drop this hard truth bomb on us and then leave. He's going to explain it a little more and help us, right? This is verses 25 to 27. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. See, that's cool. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this is huge. Paul's making it very clear. He wants us to see the bigger picture and not be conceited or arrogant and then miss this greater thing that God is doing. Okay, now what is this great thing? He says, Israel has experienced a hardening, like a hardening of the heart, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Think about that. Until the rest of the world has a chance to know. And by them knowing, they will then help Israel come back, right? So when we say God can take any situation and use it to his benefit, this is a fabulous example of that, right? Huge God did not make Israel do anything. They decided on their own to try to earn their way into heaven. They decided on their own not to follow Jesus Christ. That was on them. But God, being the patient, loving, forgiving God, he's working for their redemption still, right? He never wrote them off. And this hardening that Paul talks about, the hardening of the heart that he speaks of, is only temporary. It's not permanent. While the Israelites experience this hardening, while this is over here happening, God is over with the rest of the world, bringing them to Jesus Christ, making sure the message gets out. God says, fine, you don't want to know Jesus? We're going to share it with the rest of the world. And then, when all these have come in, we're going to use them to bring you back. See, this is just like, whoa, this is crazy. This is good stuff. So interestingly, this is a description of a future time when the Israelites, the Jews, will come to believe in Jesus Christ. And just think about that, right? How cool is that? There's a time in the future where the Jewish people will accept Jesus as the Messiah. They will believe in him. Okay. Now the next two verses, Paul's going to explain this a little more. But what really matters is in verse 29, and we're going to read that. So verses 28 to 29. He says, as far as the gospel is concerned, uh, they are enemies for your sake. 
But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So in verse 28, we really need to be careful because when Paul uses the word enemy, he does not mean they are actual enemies. He only uses that word in reference to spreading the gospel. So let me explain. Um, Today, the nation of Israel is not on our side. The Jewish people are not on our side when it comes to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want nothing to do with it. They don't want us to do that. Um, In fact, I read recently where there's some hardliners within the Israeli government today that are debating passing a law to make it against the law for Christians to try to convert a Jew in Israel. And now whether that will happen, I don't know, but I read about that. But this is what Paul is talking to. They're enemies only in the sense of spreading the gospel. They're not our actual enemies by any means, right? Now in verse 29, as I said, this is important because it tells us clearly that God's gifts and his calls are irrevocable, right? They cannot be called back. God has called the Jewish people to believe. He's called the world to believe. And that is not uh, conditional. It is permanent. It is out there. True, they have refused his invitation, but that invitation still exists. There's a time they will come back. All right, nothing has changed. Again, this is God's invitation, and we're his followers, so we follow what he wants to do. So as followers of Jesus Christ, in particular, it's incumbent upon us to understand God's call is irrevocable. It still stands, right? He sends us with this invitation, the good news of Jesus Christ. We share the good news. So, um, so what's very cool is we have a role. We have a role in bringing Israel back into the fold, right? And that is just cool, right? That's on the to-do list. That's on the horizon for the Christian people. Now, as we move on, and we're going to read verses 30 to 32, Paul's going to give us further evidence of why we need to remember this permanence of God's invitation, okay? Verses 30 to 32. He says, Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So and Paul's really describing something kind of complex. I want to restate it just so we really understand how interconnected we are with the Israelites, meaning how much we need each other. What Paul's saying is that God showed mercy to the disobedient Gentiles, right? all of us here, through the Israelites. Right? Through them. That's where we got the Bible, that Jesus was an Israelite. Right Now, God wants to work through us to reach the disobedient Gentiles. Israelites. Does that make sense? So that's how connected we are. So he basically, he just flipped the script. All right? And that's what he's going. We receive mercy through them, and now they are going to receive mercy through us. Right? And it's really cool. And with mercy, we talk about salvation through Jesus Christ. Everyone deserves a chance to know Jesus, and we are going to play a part in that plan. Again, very, very cool when we come to understand that and see that bigger picture. So here's another point that we should take uh, from the teaching today. Okay, having knowledge of God's plan, right? Having knowledge of God's plan better prepares us to be the disciple that we were created to be. Each one of us are meant to be disciples. That's what Jesus called us to do. And the more we understand God's plan, the better disciple each one of us can be, the better role we can play, right? That's what this is all about. That's, that's the huge reason why Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, right? For two reasons. One, to bring new people to the faith, 
and then the people, once they come to the faith, to train them up to be disciples, real disciples, right? That's what this is about, right? So let's see how Paul finishes this chapter, uh, verses 33 to 36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of God or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him all are all things. To him be the glory forever. So what, what we're seeing happening in these final verses is the natural result of understanding God's plan. Right? That's what Paul's talking about here. First, it's awesome to just see how great God is and all the stuff he does. But to see his plan unfolding, his care, his love, his attention for everyone, even people that turn their back on him, is when you see that and understand, that's what causes us to really sing for joy. How blessed we are, how blessed the world is, and that he wants to work through us. Right? It's just really, really cool. Now that we're coming, in, now, now that we're coming to the end of the teaching, let's recap the two main points. Uh, number one, God gave grace to all without looking at performance. Right? That's number one. And then having knowledge of his plan better prepares us to be the disciples that each one of us were created to be. Okay? That's important. So when it comes to grace, we didn't earn this. We don't own it. We can't claim it. And because it's free, it's for all people. Right? Number two, we need to understand God's plan. And it's only through understanding his plan for salvation that we can truly fulfill our God-given calling. If we really, really, if, and here's the key. If we only rely on our own judgments, our own thoughts, our own opinions, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to leave people out. We're going to show favoritism. We may just hoard all the good stuff to ourselves and keep other people out that look differently. Right? God showed us love, and it's our job to make, all, make sure all people then know him so that they can be saved as well through Jesus. So this is, let's get real now. Let's take this, make this personal. If anyone here tonight has not accepted Jesus into your heart, we will always want to give you that chance. That's number one. We want to share Jesus with everyone. We want to offer him up that he is always available. We want to share that hope. So we invite you tonight to accept Jesus into your heart if you have not done that. In a minute, we're going to pray. We're going to say a prayer. And to do that, to invite Jesus in, all you have to do is repeat the words that I say. It's private. You can do it right there in your seat. No one knows. There's no test. We're not going to ask you. We just invite you to do that, okay? But at the same time, if you have already accepted Jesus into your life, we're going to pray for each one of us to grow in our faith, to become those disciples that God intended for us to be, to carry that message on, okay? Let's bow our heads. Let's pray pray together. Father, I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today, I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, and to guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, tonight, each one of us here, we pray to be used by you. We pray that you will increase our faith, each one of us. We pray that you'll give us courage, each one of us. We pray that you'll give us strength and determination to endure all the trials that we will experience in this life. May everything we go through, good and bad, may it strengthen us. May we lean on you more. Father, today we also recommit to you. Many times in this life we get pulled away, we fall out of sync, but today we recommit to you. It's our choice. 
Father, we also pray that all people will come to know you and to place their trust in you. It's only through the saving grace of your Son that we have hope and that we're saved. And Father, as we pray that same prayer, we pray that you will use each one of us as you see fit. Use us to expand your kingdom, to reach those people who don't know you. Help us to understand your plan and each part that you have placed there, placed for us. Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save us. And it's his name we ask all these things. Amen. Amen.